0: My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. and behold, from this time on all generations will count me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and His holy is his name, and his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart, and he has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and has sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring." Father, you've been faithful to the people of Israel. You promised Abraham that you would bless him and his people and us, that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. And we thank you, our Father, that you are in control, that you are sovereign, that you are ruling in the affairs of men and nations, and that you have allowed us as Gentiles to share in the blessings that you promised Israel. And thank you that you have not forsaken them as a people that you will bring that nation to faith in Yeshua as the Messiah. We bless you, our Father, for your Son and all that he accomplished. Thank you for your bond servant Mary, who you set apart in a special way to carry the Lord Jesus in her womb. She is indeed blessed among women. Now, Father, as we come on this Lord's Day, we open our hearts to you and we ask that you would open your word to us. I know, Father, the text that is before us is a challenging, difficult portion of Scripture. So please help us to gird up our loins for action, not to wander in the thoughts of our mind, but to listen carefully to what you say, for we recognize that in our laps this morning is your very holy word. Please come and fill me and use me and teach through me that I might edify your people and lift up your Son, and I ask it in his holy name. Amen. Would you take your Bibles this morning and turn to Daniel chapter 12? If you are joining us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this prophet. This is my 20th message in this series as we come to the final study in this book. And what a study has it been as we began with Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and modeled for us how a believer could live holy in the midst of a corrupt society. We've seen their spiritual integrity modeled, but we've also studied future prophecy as it relates to all the nations of the world, but especially to the nation of Israel. We have discovered that what the book of Revelation is to the New Testament, the book of Daniel is to the Old Testament, and that it is very, very difficult to understand Revelation without understanding Daniel, and that's why we first have looked at this book before we begin our study of the Revelation. And that especially applies when we come here to the 12th chapter. Now just a review of the book, if you remember, here's the chart, it divides into two portions, hopefully you have this memorized by now. You have Daniel and his friends, chapters 1 through 6, we call that the historical section of Daniel. There's a little bit of prophecy in it, but it's largely historical. Then when you come to 7 through 12, you have Daniel and his people's future. It's largely prophetical with a little bit of history mixed in. And the whole book underscores and emphasizes that God is sovereign, the sovereignty of God. We saw that the events of chapters 1 through 6 happen chronologically, and yet there are some clear time gaps in the chronology. And so we meet Daniel as a teenager then we saw him as a man first in his 40s then in his 60s and then in his late 80s maybe even early 90s the first six chapters have time gaps in them but nonetheless they happen chronologically when you come to the four visions in the prophetic section in chapters 7 through 12 they also the visions happen one after the other but they don't all come after chapters 1 through 6 And if you don't understand that, the book becomes a little bit confusing. So as you can see on this next chart, we saw the Babylonian captivity when Nebuchadnezzar comes and carries away Daniel and his three friends. Unfortunately, most of us know them by their three pagan names, not the names that God gave them, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then we saw Nebuchadnezzar's dream in the second chapter that Daniel interpreted. In the third chapter, we saw that image and what it represented, and then how God humbles uh, a prideful, boastful man in the fourth chapter. But between the fourth and the fifth chapter, after Nebuchadnezzar's pride, and before the fall of Babylon to the Persians, happens two visions found in the prophetic section. A vision that concerns the time of the Gentiles in the seventh chapter, and the ram and the he-goat vision in the eighth chapter. But then between chapters 5 and 6 is another vision, between the fall of Babylon and Daniel when he's an old man in the lion's den, we saw the vision of chapter 9 took place, the 70 weeks vision. And then after the 6th chapter comes the 4th vision as unfolded in chapters 10, 11, and 12. Now, my Bible ends with Daniel chapter 12, but... When I teach the book of Daniel, I realize that some people have a Bible that has 14 chapters in it, the 13th chapter being the story of Susanna, and the, the 13th chapter, Susanna, and the 14th chapter being the story of Bell and the dragon. But those are not part of the book of Daniel. Those are not inspired by God. Between the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament, between Matthew and Malachi, there were some historical books that were written. We call them Apocrypha. And there are 14 to be specific. 11 of those have made their way into the Roman Catholic Bible, but neither Jews in the Old Testament era or in the first century, or to this day ever saw them as inspired. None of the church fathers whose writings are prolific ever saw them as inspired. None of the Protestant reformers saw them as inspired. The early church didn't see them as inspired. And evangelical Christians today don't see them as inspired. They are interesting, but they are not part of the Word of God. And to add them to the last two chapters of the book of Daniel, I think is somewhat dishonest and deceptive. So there are 12 chapters in the book of Daniel that God gave us. Now, if you want to understand why the early church did not deem them to be scriptures and why the Jews did not, you might want to take my course in the Institute of Biblical Studies on bibliology. It's not for the faint of heart, there's over 500 pages of notes, but one of the sections deals with how did we get the canon of Scripture. Now, with that said, let's read at least the first four verses of our text. Daniel chapter 12. Now, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep, and the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase." Now let's zoom in on the context. Remember four visions here in the second half of the book. Unlike the visions that are found in the first half of the book in which Daniel interprets them, they're given to other people and he interprets them. Here in the second half of the book, the visions are given directly to Daniel and one of God's angelic messages interpreted for him. Now if you remember in this final vision, the fourth vision, it's really found in three chapters 10, 11, and 12. The 10th chapter, if you remember, was a prologue or introduction to the vision. Daniel is earnestly seeking God in prayer. And in the midst of that, over three weeks, he is given a picture of what is happening in the invisible realm, the dark side. And how angels, even this morning, are warring, that there are angels, fallen angels and holy angels that are represented and assigned to the different nations and countries of the world, and that there's a battle going on in that realm and even amongst God's people. And then we saw the vision actually given in the 11th chapter. It's the longest vision in all of the Bible, and it's really concluded in the prologue of the book or the conclusion of the book, uh, in the 12th chapter. Now, we saw in the first 35 verses that there were specifically 135 prophecies made. In the fourth vision, there's a total of 150 prophecies. You can literally number them. And I detailed with great pain (laughs) those 135 prophecies and how God literally, actually, to the letter fulfilled them. And I believe one of the reasons God details what was future to Daniel that was all fulfilled before the coming of the Lord Jesus the first time, he details all of those to remind us how God fulfills prophecy. He literally fulfills it. He does it exactly like he says. And I say that because there are Christians even today who kind of spiritualize their interpretation of prophecy, and they don't take it at face value, yet all of the prophecies for the first coming were literally fulfilled, and that's how we can expect the prophecies for the second coming to be fulfilled. If you remember in verse 36 of chapter 11, he begins with the coming Antichrist that man of sin who is going to come on the scene, who will go against the people of Israel. And so when you come to chapter 12, this is a conclusion. This is a postscript to the vision. It's the rest of the story, so to speak, and it's an important chapter. And so there are three underlying principles that I don't want you to miss. They are there in your note-taking outline if you're with us for the first time. You might want to jot them down for further reflection. One concerns the tribulation, the other concerns the tombs, and finally the times. We begin with the tribulation that will be unleashed. The tribulation that will be unleashed. Now, in verse one of the chapter, there is an absolutely incredible conversation between God's Daniel and angel, and this angel, Michael, uh, with Daniel. It's absolutely amazing. Now, remember, the previous paragraph that we studied in our last time concerns the coming of the ruling Antichrist. This section deals with the people who are being ruled, namely Israel. Look at verse 1. Now, at that time, that's an important phrase. And so that we couldn't miss it, the Spirit of God put it twice in the verse for emphasis. Now, at that time, Michael... At that time, your people, everyone, who is written in the book will be rescued. So when you read twice over at that time, and when God wants to emphasize something, he does it different ways in Scripture, but one way is through repetition. And so the careful reader of the Bible is forced to ask, at what time? At the time described at the end of chapter 11. Remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. They are helpful to find our way around the Bible, but they are added over a thousand years after the scripture is completed. He's talking about the time frame when the Antichrist, the one world ruler, is reigning during the time of the tribulation. And he tells Daniel, through this messenger Michael, at least two principal things, two insights he gives them. First, we learn something about the prince himself, the prince of this time. Look at verse 1. It says, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. Now, Michael, the archangel, he's the only one named and deemed as an archangel in the Bible. He is pictured throughout the scripture as the protector of Israel. He appears only four times in the Bible. And in each case, he is protecting the nation of Israel. We are told that he is the one who stands guard over the sons of your people. Now, Daniel is a Hebrew. He is a Jew. And so he's talking about Michael being the protector of the Jewish people. Michael, the archangel, who's guarding the people of Israel, is going to arise. Well, what is he going to do? Well, we're not told in this text of Scripture. But we are told in the New Testament We are given divine commentary in the book of Revelation. You might want to put in the margin next to this, Revelation 12, and listen to verse 7 of that chapter. And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels, waging war with the dragon. And so there's a coming war during the time of the Great Tribulation. It's going on today, but I mean, it's a specific war that's going to result in a specific event that we're going to see in a moment. And when this happens, God's holy angels are going to wage war against Satan, here called in the Revelation, the dragon. In fact, there are 18 different names given to Satan in the Bible. You should know your enemy. If you are a Marine this morning, one of the things that your commanders teach you is you must know your enemy so that you can properly face them. We need to know our enemy is believers, and when you even study the names of Satan, you discover what he is like. One, he is called Satan. That's one of his most popular names in Scripture. He is called the devil, Diabolos. The word Diabolos means slanderer. He is a slanderer. In fact, you see the devil all the way through the pages of Scripture, from the first book to the last but there are only three instances where you actually hear his voice, where he speaks. The first time you hear him speak, he, as the diabolos, the slanderer, slanders God before man, and he tells Adam and Eve that God is cheating them, that he is ripping them off. The next time you hear the devil speak, it's in the book of Job, chapters 1 and 2, and he is slandering man before God. And the third time you hear him speak, it's in the temptation, Matthew 4, Luke 4, and he is slandering not God, not man, but the God-man, the Lord Jesus himself. He's also called the accuser in Revelation twelve ten, and that he lies about believers. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he's called the God of this world. He is the one who is energizing the philosophies that this world is embracing. And those philosophies will get more and more evil as we move to the end of time. He's called the serpent of old because he is a deceiver. He's called the evil one, literally. Why? Because his nature is intrinsically evil. He's called the tempter because he solicits people to evil. He's called a roaring lion because his... Personality is that of destruction. The devil hates you this morning and he wants to ruin and destroy your life. And if he can, he will. And if you let him, he's called the ruler of this world in John 12 31 by the Lord Jesus because Adam gave up that right to rule when he yielded to the devil. He's called an angel of light in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 14 and that he is a deceiver through his pastors. To hit false pastors, false teachers, Paul speaks. And here uh, in the revelation, he's called the dragon. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. Now we need to ask a question. What happens in this great heavenly battle when Michael, the holy archangel with holy angels, wage war against the dragon, Satan and his fallen angels? Well, uh, the revelation tells us in the 12th chapter the 9th verse, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, and he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So Satan, who is operating this morning in the heavenly realm, during the time of the tribulation, is literally going to be thrown down to the earth. And when that happens, he and his fallen angels are going to reach havoc on the planet like this world has never seen. And so in Revelation 12, in verse 12, it says, Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. 1,260 days to be specific. This will happen right in the middle of the final seven years. And so with that in mind, let me read verse 1 again of our text. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Here you have a diagram of two great events in the future. Christ is ascended up into heaven and uh, you can see that first line all the way through the rapture. The first line represents Pentecost when the Spirit of God came and the church was born. The church, the body of Christ, is a New Testament phenomenon. Jesus spoke of it in the future. I will build my church. It didn't start, the Bible teaches, until the day of Pentecost, but it will end with the rapture of the church, the next great event in human history. There's a short period of time, we're not told, could be days or weeks, but a short space of time before a man comes on the scene called the Antichrist, the prince who's to come in Daniel chapter 9, the little horn, 30-some names given of him in the Bible who will make a treaty with Israel. Right in the middle of that seven-year peace treaty, he will break it and he will commit what Jesus referred to as the abomination of desolation. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, we've studied that, He says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So right in the middle of this seven-year period, Daniel 9 tells us, Jesus affirms it in Matthew 24, the Antichrist will go into a rebuilt temple, make himself out to be God, and at that same time, right in the middle of that seven-year period, this war in heaven between Michael's angels and the devil's angels will result in the dragon, Satan, and his fallen angels coming down to the earth. And the worst half of human history begins to unfold. So there's the prince of this time, but it logically brings us now into the distress of this time, the distress that follows. Now we read, at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. So this is an unprecedented time in human history. We call it the tribulation period. But it's not a time that is first taught in the New Testament. It actually goes all the way back to Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses spoke of this time. When you are in distress, speaking to the Jewish people, and all these things have come upon you, In the latter days, and that's a phrase we have studied in the book of Daniel. We saw the distinction between the phrase last days and the latter days. The latter days refer to the very end of time before the Messiah comes to rule and reign upon the earth. And Moses wrote in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. He's speaking about the disobedience of the Jewish people, but there is coming a day and the end of time when they will be born again as we are today as Gentiles. Now, just a remnant of Jews today in the world believe, about 200,000 in our country. If you go to Israel, in every virtual small community, there's a, a congregation of Messianic Jews. But for the most part, of the 12 and a half, 13 million Jews on the earth, most of them are in unbelief. But that is going to change, as Paul teaches in Romans 11. In the latter days, listen to what the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 37. Alas, for that day is great, there is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's stress, distress, but he will be saved from it. The time of Jacob's distress. Some of your translations call it the time of Jacob's trouble. That's this last seven years that we're speaking of. Listen to what the prophet Joel said. Joel chapter 2, verse 2. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness as the dawn is spread over the mountains. So there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it. A unique time in human history. And Jesus taught that this time unfolds like the world has never seen it right at the midpoint of the tribulation. For then he said, there will be great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world nor until now. Matthew 24 verse 21 is virtually a direct quote of what we are reading in Daniel 12 and verse 1. And there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation or before that time. Now, some of my amillennial friends say that the tribulation period is over. It all happened in the first century. There's no coming Antichrist. He's already been here. Some call him Nero and different people. And, but Jesus put this event at the end of time, as does the prophet Daniel. This man of sin has not yet come. There have always been a spirit of Antichrist, but the Antichrist is yet to come. But there are some who, because of presuppositions they make about the Jewish people, I don't know what motivates it. I don't want to say an anti-Semitism, but certainly whatever motivates it, they're wrong. God is not done with the Jewish people. He is going to culminate history through them. Just as he used them to bring the first coming, He is going to use them to bring the second coming. In Revelation 3 and verse 10, Jesus spoke of this coming time on the earth when it's a time of horror. Listen to what he said to the church at Philadelphia. Because you have kept my word of perseverance, I will also come to keep you from this hour of testing, which is about to come upon the whole world to test Those who dwell upon the earth. Jesus speaks of an hour of testing that will come upon the whole world. There has never been an hour of testing in recorded human history that has affected the entire globe, but it is coming, and Jesus tells us when. And so, um, uh, remember, uh, he says here, it's about to come, and we're going to study that phrase in the Revelation to see how it is used. You say, if it was about to come, why didn't it happen to the church at Philadelphia? Because God is on a different timetable. One day is, is a thousand years, and a thousand years to the Lord is like a day. So in essence, he's only been gone two days. But there is coming a time in human history that is unprecedented that the prophet Daniel links to the latter days like Moses does, and the Lord Jesus links to his second coming to the earth. And so then John will say to the church at Philadelphia, or Jesus does, he writes it, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not to the church, but to the churches. Churches just like this one. Friends, this is a promise that if you have been born again, you will not be here for the hour of testing. You will not be here for the great tribulation. God will take you out before that time in human history. But my friend, if you are an unbeliever, And Jesus comes and catches up his church, you will enter into the very worst time this world has ever imagined, a time of persecution, a time of suffering, a time of distress and devastation that is still in front of us. Now, that's the tribulation that will be unleashed. Secondly, I want you to think with me about the tombs, the tombs that will be unsealed, the tombs that are going to be unsealed. And so beginning in the middle of verse 2, the prophet Daniel speaks of three groups of people. First, he describes the saved people, the saved who are rescued. The saved who are rescued. Listen now to verse 4 of Daniel 12. And there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. As horrible as the coming tribulation period will be, there are actually some people who will be spared during this time of human history. Jesus made that clear in Matthew twenty-four, twenty-two. Listen to these words. And if those days had not been cut short, the days of the great tribulation, no one would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. That pl- statement by Jesus himself plainly tells us that not everyone will lose their head like most Gentiles who come to faith during that time. Not everyone will be headed. Not everyone will lose their life. That there will be people who will survive the great tribulation period. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Written in what book? I preached a sermon once called God's Library. It was 26 years ago, one of the first sermons I preached, we don't even have it on tape, I should preach it again, I spoke about five books that God has in His library. One of those books is called the Book of Life, it's also called the Lamb's Book of Life. And in it are the names of everyone who will be saved. God actually recorded the names before the foundation of the world. You say He fixed it all and preordained it all, no He didn't. God is an omniscient God. He knows all that will take place. If God didn't know in the end who will be saved, God wouldn't be God. This nonsense that InterVarsity Press now espouses called open theism, that God is learning, is absolute heresy and blasphemy. God knows it all. He knows the beginning from the end. And God knew who would be saved. If God didn't know that, God wouldn't be God. But that in no way mitigates against your free will to choose. In either case, those people's names in the book of life Some on the Old Testament side, believing in God's provision that would come through the Messiah. Those of us on the other side of the cross, looking back at what God did through one named Yeshua, their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so when the Lord comes back, it will be a time of great blessing for some and a time of great horror for others. And so the church is taken up. A seven-year period begins. And during that seven-year period, as we'll see in a moment, some will be saved. The vast majority of the billions on the earth will be lost. And in describing the event that follows that seven year period called the second coming, Paul says when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, that's his visible return to the earth. First he comes to catch us up in the air. That's called the rapture. Then he comes to the earth to rule and reign. He will deal out retribution to those who do not know God. That's the essence of salvation. To know the Lord. To those who do not obey or respond to the gospel of the Lord Jesus, what will happen? These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Not everyone goes to heaven. Hell is real. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day. To be marveled at marveled at among those who believed. So it's a time of great blessing for some, a time of great horror for others. Jesus speaking of this time at his second coming. He said, then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. This has nothing, of course, to do with the rapture. The rapture is not even found in the Olivet Discourse. Jesus doesn't even reveal the truth of the rapture until that unbeliever, Judas, is left. One will be taken away in judgment. One will be left to rule and reign with the Messiah upon the earth. Now, here's a chart that might be helpful to you, kind of an overview of the events. Um, Listen, if the church is here for the Great Tribulation, there are some Christians who think we'll be here for the Great Tribulation. That the rapture and the second coming is one simultaneous event. Well, if that were true, if we go up in the rapture, And at the rapture, the catching up, that's all the word means. You say it's not found in the Bible, it's found in the Latin translation of the Bible. It just, you call it the harpazo, you can call it the catching up, I don't care what you call it, but we're going to be caught up and in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to be transformed, we're going to have a resurrection body. In your resurrection body, you'll be like Christ, you won't be able to sin. Well, if we're here for the great tribulation, if we're caught up and then we make a U-turn to the earth and we rule and reign with the Lord for a 1,000 years, then how on earth can Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9 take place? Let me read it to you. When the 1,000 years are completed, at the second coming of Christ, Satan is bound. So here's the picture. The church age, the rapture. uh, There's a period of time, days, weeks, possibly months. And then the Antichrist comes on the scene. Seven-year period takes place. Can culminates with the second coming. Satan's bound for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, which are their four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they will come up in the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire will come down from heaven and devour them. So if everyone is raptured at the second coming and we all come back in resurrection bodies and we neither marry nor are given marriage, then who on earth can the devil deceive at the end of the thousand years? No one. But if the church is first caught up, then the tribulation period unfolds and people get saved during the tribulation, Jew and Gentile alike, and then they enter the millennial reign of Christ in their natural bodies, which a literal plain interpretation of Scripture demands... And people live like they did before the great flood and they have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so forth. Look, just because I'm a believer doesn't make my children children believers. God has children. He doesn't have grandchildren. Each one has to believe for himself. And even with Jesus ruling and reigning upon the earth, even with the devil locked up with no one to deceive, really showing how fallen and wicked we are, there will be some people who will not believe on the Lord Jesus. And when the devil is loosed, he will gather those people to go against God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus himself. Listen, the plain reading of Scripture demands that the church be caught up before the great tribulation period. So there is the saved who are rescued, but there are also the dead, the dead who are raised. Again here in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So Daniel is teaching that both believers and unbelievers who have died will bodily be raised from the dead. Jesus spoke of that. And here he speaks of those who sleep in the dust of the ground. Please understand he is not referring to a person's soul or spirit. To the immaterial person of man, he's referring to a person's body. The real you, the moment you die, goes home to be with the Lord Jesus. And that is affirmed in numerous, numerous passages. And you need to know this because you're going to have someone in your family or some friend who is going to need comfort, and they're going to ask you as an ignorant Christian, where is my loved one? Are they there in that grave? Their body is, and the body is asleep, and it's a beautiful metaphor. In fact, the word cemetery in Greek means a sleeping place. It describes the state of the body, but that's only the body. Listen to what James said in James 2 and verse 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. James tells us that the body without the spirit is dead, which tells me at death, The Spirit leaves the body. The Spirit exits the body. The body sleeps just as you got up last night. Someday your body will get up out of a grave if someone buries it before the rapture. You're dead. Your body, but your person, will never die. It's home with the Lord. Now, understand, you're not dead when your heart and lungs stop. Dealt with a dear friend in Texas recently, and they called me and they said, "There's no brain activity, zero, none." The doctors have her body alive. Is she dead? I said, "She's dead." As soon as you pull the plug, she's gone. She's actually already gone. The spirit is already left. But they kept her alive so she could give her organs to people who could use them. Not a problem, by the way, biblically speaking. You say, what if I give my heart to somebody? You know, Jesus is in my heart. What happens if I give my heart to that guy, you know? (laughs) Look, please. uh." (laughs) Now, sometimes people will say to me, well, you know, I died on the operating table and I came back to life. Or sometimes people say, I died three times. You didn't die three times. It's appointed for a man to die once. Now, your heart and lungs may have stopped, but death doesn't take place until the Spirit leaves the body. And almost always these people tell me, "Uh, why are you going to heaven? Well, you know, I died, Pastor, and I saw this great light, and God told me I was such a good person that everything was fine. God didn't tell you that, and you didn't die. Listen, here's James' point. For just as the body without the Spirit is dead, so faith also without works is dead. The point he wants to make is that you can say and believe that a person is still alive, but if the Spirit is left, they are dead. And you can say that you have faith, But if you don't have a faith that has changed your life, then it's not a real faith. It's a faith that is dead. You say, well, if the spirit doesn't sleep in the grave, but only the body does, where does it go and do people have conscious fellowship with the Lord? Well, Moses and Elijah on the Mount of transfiguration had conscious fellowship. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. I'd say that's pretty conscious. Jesus said to the thief on the cross who came to faith, Truly, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me, not in the grave sleeping, but you'll be with me in paradise. In Hebrews 12 and verse 23, it refers to heaven as the place of the spirits of righteous men that are made perfect. Stephen, as he's stoned to death, he looks up and he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. His body laid there on the ground. But his spirit went home to be with the Lord. And Revelation 6, describing these believers who are beheaded during the tribulation. The souls of those who've been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which which they maintain. They never renounced Jesus, never took the mark of the beast, showing their faith was genuine. They cried out with a loud voice, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How much longer, Lord? Look, those people are very conscious. They're crying out. Paul said, we are of good courage. And I say and prefer to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Absent from the body, present with Jesus. That's why he could tell the Philippians, for me to live as Christ, And to die is gain, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, that is very much better. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is much better. Paul said, on the one hand, I'm between a rock and a hard place. There's a part of me that would like to stay here to serve you, to help the body of Christ and continue evangelizing the world. But I know it would be much better to depart and be home with Jesus That is far better. And remember, he writes this six years after he writes 2 Corinthians. He has already been given a glimpse of glory where God pulled back the curtain and showed him how marvelous and how wonderful heaven is. So marvelous, he has to be given a thorn in the flesh so that he never brags about it. He tells the church at Thessalonica, you don't have to grieve like those who have no hope. Unbelievers grieve like those who have no hope or a false hope. Well, he's in a better place. Not if he was an unbeliever. He's not in a better place. But you who are really saved don't have to grieve like those who have no hope. Because, therefore, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that's our confession at our baptism, that our faith is in the death and resurrection of Christ, is pictured in baptism. If we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him, with him from where? From heaven. With him, those who have fallen asleep, absent from the body, present with the Lord. If I drop dead this morning on this platform before the rapture, Jesus will come back with my spirit from heaven and he will reconnect it to the body in the grave. Those of us who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air. The dead in Christ will come out of the grave first. Those of us who are alive will be caught up. There'll be a great celebration in the sky. So listen, contrary to my Seventh-day Adventist friends, your body, soul, and spirit does not sleep in the grave, absent from the body, present with The Lord, look at Daniel 12.2, many of those who are asleep and the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but look at the corollary. But the others, to disgrace and everlasting contempt, the first group speaks of these Jews and Gentiles who have died in this time of distress, described in the first verse, the time of the tribulation. These were martyred during the Great Tribulation, and then he speaks of these unbelievers. Now, interestingly, the resurrection of unbelievers is separated in the New Testament by a thousand years. Let me read to you Revelation 20 and verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. So he speaks of the first resurrection that you want to be a part of, but the rest of the dead who are part of the second resurrection, as you read that chapter... They don't come to life until it's all over. They come to a time of disgrace and everlasting contempt. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Now, by the way, let me say parenthetically, there are some Christians who say, well, if the first resurrection... And there's clearly a resurrection at the end of the tribulation, at the end of the time of distress in Revelation 12:1. If that happens at the end of the time of distress, then that must mean that Christians aren't raptured seven years before. But understand the term in the Bible, first resurrection, is not dealing so much with the hour of the resurrection as the kind of resurrection. It's not dealing so much with the timing, but the type. Let me explain. There's a resurrection program that God gives in his word that is different, by the way, from those who've been raised from the dead. Seven people in the Bible are raised out of death into life. You know that. Elijah raised one. Elisha raised one. Jesus raised three. Maybe Lazarus, the most famous. Paul raised one. Peter raised one. Seven people. But guys like Lazarus eventually got old or sick, we're not told, and they died and they're buried in some tomb over there in Israel. They were raised to life. Jesus was the first ever to be raised from the dead, resurrected to life. And there's a difference. Now, there are seven feasts in the Old Testament. They're a study in themselves. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, we've hit on them a little bit. Four in the spring of the year, three in the fall of the year. The four in the spring of the year have already been fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. The three in the fall of the year... Are types or symbols of what will happen at the second coming of Christ. One of those four spring feasts is called first fruits. If you've studied first fruits in the Bible, again, these are pictures of what God is going to do through His Son. They would bring, you know what first fruits are. If you're a farmer, you know what the first fruits are. It's the early part of the crop. And it usually comes three or four weeks before the big harvest comes. Those few plants that ripen early. And so when first fruits came, they would bring a single sheaf. And the priests would bless it and dedicate it to the Lord. And then they would take a handful of grain and the people would be able to eat it. And it was symbolic of God's blessing of the harvest to come. And so Christ is the first one ever raised from the dead. He is that single sheaf, And the handful of grain that the people eat before the big harvest represented those people who came to resurrection after Jesus raised an often overlooked verse is Matthew 27:52 Jesus put it there because it was the fulfillment of the illustration found in first fruits it says in verse 52 of Matthew 27 the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection They entered the holy city and appeared to many. God included that to picture for us first fruits. So Paul says this, first Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter. But each in his own order, Christ, he's a single sheaf, the first fruits, that's his handful of Old Testament saints. After that, those who are his at his coming. So if you've been saved, you're a part of the harvest who's to come. Here's a diagram. Steve made for me beautifully, Uh, in the first fruits you have Christ and that handful of Old Testament saints. We're in the church age right now. The next part of the harvest is called the rapture of the church. And then to come are the gleanings that will begin with the tribulation saints all the way through the end of the millennium. Those people who come to faith uh, during the tribulation, and, and even those who believe during the time of the millennial, because not all children will be unbelievers. So if you study the Scripture carefully, you discover there are actually seven resurrections listed in the Bible. Christ was the first, that handful of Old Testament saints, then the saints who are raptured, then there are two witnesses in Revelation 11 that God takes directly up to heaven after they've laid dead in the streets for three days and the world parties over their death. Then the tribulation, all the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints who are raised. And then the gleanings at the end of the millennial reign of Christ where the Lord rules on the earth. That's all part of the first resurrection. But then there's the second resurrection. Listen to what John said. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. Again, they will be priests of God and of his Christ. They'll rule and reign for a thousand years. Listen, the first resurrection is not an event, it is an order. And it encompasses six different resurrections that's described in the Bible. The second resurrection is the worst resurrection. That's the resurrection of the lost. Listen, just as there are two kinds of death, there are two kinds of resurrection. The first death we call physical death. The second death is what the Bible refers to as eternal death. And just as in physical death, not everybody dies at once, but over a period of time, even so on the second death, not everyone, uh, you know, it happens over a period of time. So the first death, you will die if Jesus doesn't come back before the rapture of the church. But I want to tell you, if you do, you'll be present with the Lord. That's a glorious truth. I don't feel sad for anyone's funeral I have to attend. I rejoice for them if I know they're a believer. Now, if they're not, It's a grievous thing for me as a pastor to officiate over. So, we could spend an hour there, come back for the book of Revelation. I'll detail it for you, okay? Now, uh, there's the saved who are rescued, the dead who are raised. Finally, there's the wise who are rewarded. The wise who are rewarded. Let's think about this group highlighted here in verse 3. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. He describes two groups of believers who are rewarded for their faithfulness during the time of the tribulation. First, he speaks of those who have insight, that they will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. This is a reference in the Scripture to those who faithfully teach the Word of God. How do I know that? Because Scripture interprets Scripture. For instance, we've already seen in Daniel eleven thirty three, those who have insight, same phrase, among the people will give understanding to the many. And so he's talking about those who open the Word of God and help people to understand it. Now, God certainly has teachers and pastor teachers in the church to do that. But it is extended beyond that in Scripture. There's a sense if you've been saved, God has called you to teach. Maybe not in a formal way, in an adult Bible fellowship or as a pastor of a church, but there ought to be some questions that you can answer. That every time you have a question, you don't have to run to your pastor. You can say, well, let me show you what the Bible says. Go, therefore, the commission given to the whole church and make converts, disciples of all people. What do you do with those new converts? You baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you teach them all that I taught you. That's the great commission that's given to every blood-bought child of God. It's a common responsibility that we share. And God wants to remind you this morning, though he's dealing with those in the tribulation, the New Testament deals with the same truth, that if you are involved in the process of giving men and women and boys and girls insight, whether it's in a wanna class or the children in your home or someone in your neighborhood, God is going to reward you for that. And then he adds, and those who lead the many to righteousness... Like the stars for who, like the stars forever and ever. This is a description of those, especially during the tribulation period, because of the great cost that it will bring to share your faith. As even in our day, the cost is getting greater. But nonetheless, those who lead or introduce people to Christ, those who teach, those who win people are compared to the expanse, the brightness of the sky and to the stars that are in the heaven above. They will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness, those who point Jesus, people to Yeshua, to Jesus like the stars forever and ever. It's a picture of reward. Listen, heaven is wonderful for everyone who goes, but it's not the same for everyone who goes. There are some Christians who have their whole reward burned up in smoke. You're not saved by works, you're saved by grace, but you are rewarded for your service. And so one of the crowns that God speaks of in the New Testament is the crown of rejoicing, or sometimes we call it the soul winner's crown. Is that crown, that reward that God gives to the faithful believer who points people to the Savior. You can do it. This week, if you invite someone to church, they end up coming. Like the woman in the first service, someone invited her and she got saved because of it. Someone's going to be rewarded in heaven for that. You can invite someone to the musical next week. You could take someone through the plan of salvation this week. And some of you need to go to a higher level than just come and see, but go and win. You need to go and share the plan of salvation. And so he speaks here of these who are rewarded, and some will have greater reward. Proverbs says, he was wise when souls. You know, when I have a major decision I want to make, and I'm looking for a wise person, among other things, I want to know if they're a soul winner. Because if they're not a soul winner... And they don't have a burden to win people to Jesus. They're not a spirit-filled Christian. And I don't want to get advice from them. So he's speaking here. Those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And then he adds in verse 4. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Daniel is told to conceal these words and to seal up this book. These words have primary application to those living at the end of time. So he wrote it down so all can read it. And 25 years later, we are reading it. Now, I must say parenthetically that verse 4 is often misinterpreted in a number of ways. God says here, through Michael the archangel, many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. And some would say, well, the phrase, many will go back and forth, that speaks of increased travel. You know, what we see in our day, that Daniel rode on a horse and we fly in an airplane, that uh, we uh, travel at the speed of sound and we communicate at the speed of light. Oh, that makes for colorful preaching. And then they add, um, and knowledge will increase. They would say, well, now we have knowledge at our fingertips. This is the internet. This is modern technology. Now, I could ride that horse, but I won't. It would make for colorful preaching, but it's just not what the Scripture teaches. The Scripture must interpret the Scripture. And so the chronicler, in a number of passages, used the phrase to move to and fro, to go back and forth of someone who's searching. For instance, 2 Chronicles 16 For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro, identical phrase, to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Jeremiah uses the same Hebrew words. There he commands, Rome to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and look now and take note and seek in her open gates. If you can find a man, if there is one who does justice, who seeks truth. Amos the prophet, identical phrase. People will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east and they will go to and fro And they will seek the word of God, but they won't find it. Zechariah, these are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the earth. In each of these above cases that I just read, the Hebrew word shoot is translated, and it describes someone who is looking, who is searching. And so the knowledge that they will desperately go back and forth for is going to be found here in the word of God. Listen, when this awful time comes in human history, when the worst time the world has ever known comes in human history, many will turn to the Word of God. They will go back and forth at the end of time, and they will realize that everything that Daniel said about Messiah, even identifying Him in Daniel 9 to be Yeshua, by the time frame, Jesus, they will come to a real knowledge of the truth. Now, quickly, as we finish, the tribulation that is unleashed, the tombs that are unsealed, finally, the times that will be understood. The times that will be understood. Two questions and their answers that bring us to the conclusion of the book. First, in verses 5 through 7, we find the angels question and reply. Look, if you will, now at verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others... We're standing, one on this bank of the river, and the other on the other bank of that river. Now, remember the prologue, chapter 10. I told you this is a unit, 10, 11, and 12, where we find Daniel on the bank of the Tigris River. And so here in verse 5, he tells us of two angelic beings who appear as men, as angels often do, and only as men, never as women in the Bible, and they're on each side of the river. But now, beginning in verse 6, we find a third angel who's distinctly different. Listen to verse 6. And one said, one of the angels on the bank, to the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? By the way, the fact that an angel asks a question reminds me that angels aren't omniscient, as many pagans are writing, like they have insight and knowledge, uh, like God does. They're not. They're finite created people. Uh, persons, but angelic persons. Now, who is this one above the waters? We've already met him. If you were here in Daniel uh, in Daniel 10, you might want to put out next to this verse, Daniel 10, 5 and 6 in the margin. Daniel 10, 5 and 6. Remember, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of euphaz. His body was also like barrel his face had the appearance of lightning his eyes were like flaming torches his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze who is this none other than the angel of the lord and he is described in the exact same way as the lord jesus in revelation 1 now remember in the old testament there is a special angel he's called not just an angel but the angel of the lord And he's called God in the Old Testament. So there were times in the Old Testament where God himself came as an angel. And of course, when you study those passages and you see that this angel is called Yahweh, Jehovah, you want to ask, well, what member of the Trinity is he? And we did a whole study on this. It's in the series. You can go back and listen to it. And we learned that it was the second person of the Godhead, that before Jesus came at Christmas, before he incarnated himself in human flesh, at times he would appear as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. And that's who we are meeting here. And the same description is given of the Lord Jesus in Revelation chapter one. And so this is no ordinary angel. It's the Lord answering. He gives him the answer. Verse seven, I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swore by him, Who lives forever, that he would, that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. That's the answer to the question. It will last for time, times, and half a time. Now, if you were here in Daniel 7, we saw the identical phrase. We saw the word time was a single unit times a dual, referring to two, and half a time. So he's talking about three and a half. Three and a half what? Three and a half years, to be specific, as he uses it in Daniel chapter 9. And so there's coming a time, a seven-year period, divided into two three-and-a-half-year periods, also called 1260 days, 1260 days, 42 months, 42 months, same time frame. And in this last time, remember, the it's all called the tribulation. First half is bad, but when you see the abomination of desolation, when Satan is cast down to the earth, then great tribulation will come on the earth like the world has never seen it. And when that final time, times, and half a time, three and a half years are complete then it's all going to be completed that's what he wants him to know but now there's daniel's question daniel's question and reply daniel's question although daniel heard the conversation going on between the angel on the bank and the angel above the river he doesn't understand it so he asked the question as for me i heard but could not understand so i said my lord what will be the outcome of these events now the bible says you don't have cuz you don't ask so david so daniel asks and god gives him a fourfold answer He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed, closed, shut up, hidden, depending on your translation, and sealed up until the end of time. So first, the Lord tells him that as much as he'd like to know all these truths, it won't be until the end of time when Israel is oppressed that he'll be able to understand these things. These truths are concealed and sealed up, he says, until the end of time. When Daniel's people, during the tribulation period see the events that he has already spoken of that are so plain happen, then they're going to go in search. Their eyes will go to and fro. They'll gain knowledge from the Scripture, and they're going to realize all that God had said about the Messiah, and they'll believe on him whom they have pierced. Many, the Scripture says, verse 10, will be purged, purified, and refined. Now remember, Michael is talking about your people, the Jewish people, When the horrors of the tribulation unfold, as Paul teaches in Romans 11, they are going to believe all Israel will be saved. God is going to use this time for two groups of people. We've already studied how God will use it for the Jewish people. Hosea chapter 5, verse 15. Messiah is speaking. I will go away and return to my place. That's what Jesus did. He left to heaven. I will go away and return to my place until, until, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, in their distress, they will earnestly seek me. And so the Bible teaches during the time of Jacob's trouble, as we already read from, also from Deuteronomy, Moses' statement, the Jewish people are going to believe that Jesus is Lord. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing that is going to happen. But John teaches not just Jewish people. Listen to this, Revelation 7. After these things, I looked and behold in a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all the tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the Lord and before the Lamb. Someone said, who are these people? And John says, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The Jews are going to be saved and those Gentiles who have never heard the gospel before in clarity and in power, are going to be saved. It won't mean anybody here, anybody in the sound of my voice, because you've heard the gospel. But there will be people from every tongue, tongue, tribe, and nation. The gospel will go through the whole world. All these unreached people who have never been reached. Everyone is going to hear the gospel. The vast majority will spurn the living God. But John sees a multitude who comes out of the tribulation who believe in Jesus is Lord. Look, unbelievers, today, if the rapture takes place, it's too late for you, my friend, because the Bible says you will experience the deluding influence because you took joy in sin, you will believe what's false. And so verse 10 says, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. Look, the same sun that melts the butter hardens the clay. The wicked will act more wickedly. Listen to what John said describing these unbelievers during the tribulation. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun and it was given to it, to this angel, to scorch men with fire and men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues and they did not repent so as to give God glory. That's what Daniel's saying. The wicked will become more wicked. Now, notice verse 11, the third part to the Lord's answer. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, we've studied this, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335th day? What does this talk about? Well, here's a chart to help you a little bit. Remember... The tribulation, two even periods, 1,260 days each. At the end of the tribulation period, he speaks of another 30 days making for 1,290 days. We've studied the calendar that God gives in the Bible. It's based not just on the sun like our calendar, but the sun and the moon. And so we base our calendar on the sun and we have a leap day every four years. The Jewish calendar, in the wisdom of God, it's much more precise. It's based on the sun and the moon. And they don't have a leap day. They have a leap month, this intercalary month. And so we saw the biblical month being 30 days. And, you know, if you only have 30 days in a month, after so many months, it piles up and you're behind schedule. You don't want to have the harvest in February. You know, things get mixed up. And so they have a way of adding a leap month, so to speak. And God did it that way for a reason, we saw, to underscore prophecy and its preciseness. It's a prophetic calendar. So there's this inner additional month of 30 days, and then there's another 45 days, adding up to 1,335 days, and then the 1,000-year reign of Christ. So what are these 30-day and this 45-day period referring to? Well, I don't know from this text of Scripture, but other scriptures inform me. For instance, Jesus said this in Matthew 24, but immediately after the tribulation, after the end of this second half, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heaven will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will come. Look, if the second coming of Jesus, which is what's spoken of in Matthew 24 it happens right at the end of the 1260 days. You could calculate, you could say, this is the day Jesus is coming back. But Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour. So after the second half of the tribulation is over, there's another month, and during that month, Yeshua comes. No man knows the exact day or the hour, but God's people will be alert to what is actually happening during that time. You say, what's the extra 45 days for? Well, I don't know all that it's for, but I do know, among other things, that during this whole segment of time that the land of Israel is going to need to be cleansed because of the millions of dead people in the land because of the battle of Armageddon. I know that during that time God is going to reward His people for their faithfulness. I know that during that time in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, also called the Kidron Valley, A judgment will take place where God will separate the sheep from the goats. So there's a lot that is going to happen, but I don't know all that's going to happen because God tells me it's concealed here into the end of time. But he does say, verse 12, how blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1335th day. By the 1335th day, the only people who will be left on the earth are believers. And they will enter into God's kingdom. And so God closes the book. Look at verse 13. But as for you, as for you, Daniel, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion until the end of the age. God is saying, carry on your business. You're going to enter into the realm of death. But at the end of the age, your body will rise again and you're going to be rewarded. Now on one end of the spectrum... There are Christians today who waste their time, and they're investing in absolutely nothing. And they come just because it's convenient, and if it's inconvenient, they're not even here on the Lord's Day. You know, churches all across America are canceling Sunday services because it falls in Christmas. And their reason is, well, we need to be with our families. Well, let's make the family a God. Let's violate one of the Ten Commandments and blow off the Lord's Day. That's a wicked thing. That's the lukewarmness of our day. It is still the Lord's Day Sunday, and I don't care what day Christmas. I love it when Christmas falls on a Sunday. Then we see who the real people are who are earnest. As for you, go your way to the end. Then you enter rest and rise again for your allotted portion. So on the one hand, you have some people who are wasting their life. On the other end of the spectrum, you have Christians who are so consumed with prophecy and they've got their charts and everything else, but it's not changing their lives. Take this information. Do something with it Daniel. And so the book of Daniel ends. By God's grace, we've finished another book. Now let me say this. By way of application, there are many truths I learned from this book. You know, and as I've studied Daniel, no man could have figured this out. This book is so absolutely amazing and it interfaces with so many other books of the Bible. Only God could have written this book because behind every single human author, there's one divine author. But there are many lessons I learned. First, I'm going, I am going, first of all, as I study this prophet, if I'm going to live my life well to the end as God tells Daniel to do, then I must look inwardly and keep my life pure and clean. Listen, we're living in days of lukewarmness. We're living in days... I spoke to a lady yesterday who told me she was born again. I, I hope she is. But she told me, I'm not coming back. Why not? She said, because I heard a sermon recently where you spoke against homosexual people as being sinful. I said, I did. Guilty as charged. She said, well, I have a lot of homosexual friends. I said, that's wonderful. If you're a Christian, you should befriend all people. Anyone is welcome to this church. She said, but you're judging them by saying it's wrong. Am I? I said, if someone broke into your home tonight and murdered your husband, would that be wrong? She said, of course. You're judging me. What if I did that? You're judging me. I said, the reason you know that's wrong is because God has made a judgment. He's already said that's wrong. And I read to her 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do not be deceived, neither the unrighteous, not fornicators, not idolaters, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor revilers, shall inherit the kingdom of God, period. The next verse says, and such were some of you. If the the truth were known out of our 2,000 plus members at CBC, there's a few dozen former gay people. And I thank God for each one that God has rescued and saved. God has made a judgment. But we live in a day of lukewarmness and apathy and compromise. Look, when Jesus comes and you step into His holy presence, you're going to realize you were bought with a price. And that the only thing worthy of this life is to live for Him. Look inwardly. Secondly, I am motivated as never before to look outwardly, to warn men and women and boys and girls to turn to Jesus Christ. Look, if we are wise, we will win souls. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Implication if you're not fishing for men, you're not following Christ. We're living in a day where we are drowning in a sea of information, where we are sinking in a swamp of sin. And yet we have the truth. And the reason America is going down the tubes has nothing to do with the government. And it has everything to do with the body of Christ who is lukewarm, who is compromised, who are so entertained with the world they no longer reach out to lost people. Look, there's only three problems in this world. Sin, sorrow, and death. And we have the answers. And we would be wise to speak about it. Now, Holy Father, I thank you that you gave me the grace to be able to teach another book from your word. But we certainly don't want to be those who just hear the word. We want to be those who will respond to it. I pray today for someone who's listening in the sound of my voice, who's not really sure about heaven, They'd like to go, but they really don't know. Thank you for your promise. And thank you that you can never lie, that you keep all your promises, that whoever, anyone, whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Thank you. You can make that promise because of the payment he made in our stead there on Golgotha as he died and bled for us, improved his ability when you raised him from the dead, Help someone in simple childlike faith to believe your promise to say, Lord Jesus, save me. But Father, we know as we're going to study in the Revelation and as other passages reveal that the church, the true believers at the end of time will be lukewarm. Father, I can't control other people, but I know I can control my heart. And if we don't see revival in America, let us see revival in South Carolina. And if we don't see revival in South Carolina, let us at least see revival in this church. And Father, if we can't see revival in this church, may we see revival in our individual hearts. We know only people in your word will last forever. Everything we own, you said someday will be burned. Thank you that you've given us all things to enjoy, but help us not to be captivated by things. Help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Help us even in this season of Christmas to make a difference in the lives of people. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.